Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Black on the Air. My name is Larry Wilmore. I believe we were off a week. I can't keep track sometimes, but it's nice to be back. And yes, we were off because I didn't get a chance to talk about the um, little party that those uh, conservative alt-right people had at the Capitol, which was really nasty and pretty bad. Um, So it's good to be back as we're about to kick somebody out of that White House, which is kind of nice. Very exciting week, you guys. But once again, a couple of very surreal weeks on the way to the end. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend uh, birthday, I guess you could say. His birthday is actually, I believe, on the 15th, but we celebrated this weekend. And on my podcast today, we have Sam Pollard, who directed this uh, new documentary on Martin Luther King. It's called MLK slash FBI. And it's really interesting because he really goes into detail about the FBI and their involvement in surveilling Martin Luther King and a lot of details that you just didn't know, you know, um, it's really, really, really interesting, uh, documentary. You could get it on Amazon prime. I think you can order it and I think it's through IFC, but you can find it online. Just type in the internet search MLK slash FBI and you can find out how to watch that movie. It's really good. You guys should see it. Way to celebrate MLK weekend. It's very controversial, too, because a lot of the things the FBI found out about, of course, were MLK and his kind of adulterous um, stuff, let's just say. So, you know, it creates kind of a, it can create, I should say, kind of a complicated view of Martin Luther King. But I think you should watch it, check it out, and listen to, uh, I think you'll enjoy my talk with Sam that I had with him uh, yesterday. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, guys, this is it. The tangerine Idi Amin finally on his way out. The uh, pumpkin Putin, <laughs> the uh, pomegranate Papa Doc, right? The uh, orange Julius Caesar, the mango Mussolini, as we called him a few years ago. It's been very surreal. Um, he can't leave soon enough. I mean, he got impeached twice. I mean, that's crazy. Um, my friend Leah Krinsky, who's a brilliant comedy writer and was you know, as good a stand-up comic as well, said to me one of the funniest jokes that Trump left his old impeachment for a younger, hotter impeachment. I thought it was very funny. Lots of jokes about it, of course. But guys, I mean, this is ridiculous. The fact that you got to impeach a president on his way out of the fucking office? How pathetic is that? I mean, it's terrible. I said on Twitter... I mean, Trump managed to find a way to snatch humiliation from the jaws of defeat, you know, 
I mean, that's what he's really done here. He's so he's been so delusional about this whole election and everything. And, you know, the amount of people who have drunk the Kool-Aid has just been fascinating to me. And it's pathetic that he can't even engage in an actual transfer of power, not even going to the inauguration. We have to have all this National Guard at the inauguration after those idiots stormed the Capitol, which was so ridiculous. And let me just say something about that, too, because I didn't get a chance to talk about that. Um, A lot of people kind of compared that to, they said, what if Black Lives Matter was, uh, you know, did that and stormed the uh, Capitol, you know? Those people would have been shot. And black people, and I don't like that analogy because the Black Lives Matter protest never did some shit like that. <laughs> you know, it's not a good analogy. You know, there's no reason for them to storm the Capitol, you know. Uh, to me, a better analogy, if you're going to do a hypothetical, is what if President Obama, before he was reelected, went in front of a crowd, let's say, of mainly black people, and encourage them to storm the Capitol. Like, or let's say he lost the election to Mitt Romney, encourage the large group of black people to storm the Capitol to make sure that they could not certify the vote. Now that's what I'm talking about. How do you think people would have reacted to that? You know, uh, because the president is the one that makes that different. It's the president that was complicit in that, that makes that a different issue. Not that it's just a a mob that got out of control or a group of people or protesters or whatever it is. We're talking about this course of action being directed by the president of the United States. Ridiculous, you know, but we know Obama never, never would have done that. Nor can I think of any other president. If Nixon wouldn't have done it, you know, I mean, that's the only one that could have done it in my lifetime, but he had too much sense to do something like that. You know, by the time he went out he was on his knees, like, you know, praying to some paintings or something. It was very bizarre. I think he and Kissinger or something like that. It was strange. Um, But I'm happy to see Donald Trump go. But, you know, it's this has been so bizarre, you guys, this whole Trump presidency. And I, I wanted to make one point here, if you will indulge me for a bit. As a writer, I really like to focus on the words that we use. And, you know, I can be a nerd about language and that kind of stuff. And I love all my nerds out there who are listening to me, who are language nerds and that type of thing. I see you. But language is important. The words that we choose to use is very important. They can be very powerful, you know, or they can be not so powerful, depending on how you use them. But there's been a word that we have been using with Donald Trump that I don't think has served up a, a purpose very well right now. And that word is lie. And I've used it as well. We've called Donald Trump a liar from the beginning, and he is a liar. You know, he lies all the time about things. You know, he would lie about the color of the sky. The man is so used to lying, he just can't stop it. You know, the biggest example of lying, of course, is saying that he won this election in a landslide, which is a straight-up lie, you know. And, you know, we all call that out. It's very easy to see. It's pretty transparent. But there's something else going on here, you guys. It's the people who are believing this bothers me. Because lies can be pretty transparent, and some lies can be easily disproven. Like this lie about the stolen election is a pretty easily disproven lie. So what else is going on here? Why are people 
so wanting to believe this thing that isn't true. And so I had to think to myself, uh, I should give you a little background. Some of you already know this. One of my hobbies is uh, magic, close-up magic in particular. I'm a member of the Magic Castle. Loved it since I was a kid. I love watching uh, this art form. There's some incredible artists out there who are brilliant at, at magic and that type of thing. And I've loved it since I was a kid, right? And magicians are involved in something that is not quite a lie. There's a better word for it, and it's called deception, okay? And it feels like it's the same thing, but it's not quite. It's a little more subtle. And I believe the reason why it's been hard for people like me or people on the left, maybe, or whoever, to get our heads around how people could believe such lies of Donald Trump, because it's a little deeper than that. Donald Trump has been involved in a mass deception, I think is a better way to explain this, rather than just the simplicity of what a lie is. And let me go a little further in this, and let me define a couple of terms. Actually, I, I, was, I thought about this because I was reading, I was doing some research for myself in one of my magic books. And if you're interested in what this is, uh, you can send me a message or something. I'll give you more information if you're into magic. But uh, there's this book that uh, it was talking a little bit about theory and was defining deception. And I'll read a little bit of it to you to show you where I'm coming from. And it says, when seeking to understand what deception is, a perhaps obvious place to start would be a dictionary. However, dictionaries turn out to be surprisingly poor sources for those seeking clarity on the topic. For example, the Oxford Dictionary of English defines deception as to deliberately cause someone to believe something that is not true, especially for personal gain. This definition falls short in several respects. First, it implies that truth or falsehood is a binary either-or state, i.e. things are true or not true, and does not consider the possibility of varying degrees of truth, partial truths, subjective truths, contested truths, and unknown truths. A second problem is that the definition cannot accommodate situation in which a deceiver wishes their target to not believe a situation that is true. The definition, therefore, is unable to accommodate situations in which an entity is operating covertly and wishes the target to have no suspicion, let alone belief as to their real identity or behavior. A third more fundamental problem with this definition is that it is entirely feasible to deceive a target without lying and by communicating using nothing but the truth. This form of deceptive strategy is referred to as paltering and can be lingual or temporal in nature. This important and often overlooked fact highlights the limited utility and value of lying and lie detection paradigms for making sense of the broader field of deception. So that is from a magic book talking about deception, you know, and kind of what the nature is. And it brought up this term called paltering, P-A-L-T-E-R-I-N-G, which I, I had actually never heard of this term. Fascinating term. Um, and let's talk about paltering for uh, a second and what that is. And um, paltering, this is from another source here. Paltering is the active use of truthful statements to convey a misleading impression. So it is the active use of truthful statements to convey a misleading impression. Now, one of the most uh, famous examples of paltering was when Bill Clinton had the thing with Monica Lewinsky. And they actually give the example here. Jim Lehrer said on um, PBS, 
He said, so no improper relationship. Define what you mean by that. And President Clinton said, well, I think you know what it means. It means there is not a sexual relationship, an improper sexual relationship or any other kind of improper relationship. And Jim Lehrer says, you had no sexual relationship with this young woman? And President Clinton says, there is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Now, referring to his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, he claimed there is not a sexual relationship. Later, the Star Commission discovered that there was. But during the interview, Clinton made a claim that was technically true by using the present tense word is, but his statement was intended to mislead. Right? We all remember that. Um, now, there are some technical terms about this type of thing, too, you know, uh, and some of it is in magic, uh, you know, and I apologize if I'm getting a little too technical here. And they're called expiring truths or expired truths. You know, what Clinton had engaged in is is denying an expired truth. That truth had already expired, and he denied that expired truth. <laughs> so he was he's telling the truth of the present by denying an expired truth because he's no longer in it. An expiring truth is a little different. In the moment, something is true, but it's going to expire very soon thereafter. You know, like in a card trick. A magician may, and I'm not giving anything away here to my magic friends about card tricks, but say somebody picks a card and, you know, they lose in a deck and shuffling saying, now I have no idea what your card is. And that's true. The magician is true. But at some point, the magician's going to find out what that card is. And so that is an expiring truth. You know, he'll have his secret ways of doing it. But at the time he tells you he doesn't know what your card is, he's telling you the truth. But that truth is rapidly expiring. Okay. So anyhow, um, I'm just giving you some examples of how how deception works and how, you know, it's a little different from lying. One thing that this book asks is, is it possible to deceive oneself? Let's talk about that for a second. And it says, it seems logically coherent to conceptualize deception as a transactional act that is committed intentionally by one person or organization against another. However, many students of deception suggest that deception does not entail a deceiver fooling a target. Instead, that the target always deceives themselves. However, the notion of a target somehow being able to fool themselves seems intrinsically paradoxical, right? Um, so let's look at these three different ways that a target can fool themselves. The intentionalist perspective. The intentionalist perspective posits that self-deception, in effect, operates internally on the same basis as interagency deception, whereby a deceiver intentionally seeks to induce their own erroneous beliefs. This creates a situation in which the self-deceived person holds a true belief while at the same time incorrectly believing the contrary. The view requires that the deceiver's belief system can notionally be partitioned so that one part believes the truth and this part intentionally brings about the erroneous belief in the other part. For example, in Aesop's fable about the fox and the grapes, a hungry fox first sights some grapes that appear purple, ripe, and sweet, but after he realizes he cannot reach them, he decides that they are too green to eat. He therefore intends to deceive himself and is left holding on to parallel contradictory views. Okay, now there's another one called the motivationist perspective. An alternate view, uh, the motivationist perspective, posits that strong desire for certain incorrect beliefs about the world to be true can lead to these desired beliefs overriding and eventually replacing original correct beliefs about the world. For example, consider person A whose partner person B 
dies unexpectedly. Person A's desire to reconnect with person B is so strong that they decide to visit a psychic, despite being highly skeptical about their claims. As a result of the psychic stating that they have made contact with person B and seeming to pass on detailed personal information, they're involved in a deception, by the way, from them, person A's skeptical beliefs are overwhelmed and replaced by the belief that it's actually possible to communicate with the dead. In this case, there is no intent for person A to deceive themselves as the deception occurs only as a side effect of the desire to believe. They didn't intend to deceive themselves. They just wanted to believe. Uh, there's also no requirement to hold conflicting views as one view becomes replaced by another. So in that case, you don't have to partition. Now, this last one, and thanks for listening to this, you guys. I know it's a little um, technical here, but I love this. This is the deflationist perspective. A third view, the deflationist perspective, suggests that self-deception occurs as a consequence of biased cognitive processing that is itself the product of the motivational states of the subject. For example, I strongly wish something incorrect to be true. I may pay more attention to information that confirms or supports my wish than information that weakens or disconfirms it. We call this confirmation bias and some of that, but it's very powerful in this sense when when you really have that desire. At some point, in light of all the positive supporting evidence I've collected that supports my wish, I am led overwhelmingly to the conclusion that my incorrect, incorrect belief must be true. For example, if I am open-minded and thus undecided as to the possibility that the moon landings may have been faked, I may decide to research the matter for myself. Online searches takes me to a site that provides some shocking, exciting, and plausible, possibly plausible information that, if true, would prove that the moon landings are faked. As a result, I conduct further searches looking for additional evidence that corroborates this information and happen to find plenty. After some time conducting further research, the amount of evidence I have gathered showing that the moon landings are faked is so overwhelming, and with so little evidence available to me that suggests otherwise, that I now have no choice but to believe that the moon landings were a hoax. In this manner, my desire for something to be true has biased the information I search for and subsequently find, which in turn leads me to search for more of the same type of information. And eventually the weight of this one-sided evidence is so overwhelming that I am compelled to adopt a false belief. I believe that many of the people, because I'm, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt here. There are some people with horrible intentions. And I, I agree with you guys on that. But I honestly do believe that many people have been involved in a mass deception, have been duped, and have been, been involved in a self-deception. You know, they're they're complicit in this as well. And the Machiavellian nature of it is sprinkling the truth in it to, you know, just make it irresistible for some people and make it hard to shake off. And that's why this is different than just lying. When Trump says, and when his minions say that there were irregularities in this election, that's true. There are irregularities in every election. <laughs> that is not a false statement. You know, some dead people voted in this election. That is true. Uh, people, that happens in every election too, where there are irregularities or people who have died, someone either votes for them or there's something happens. But the fact of the matter is, when they said that about Georgia, that was two instances of that, not the thousands that they said. But they're using a truth to deceive people about this lie, you know. And there are many more examples of that. So 
what I'm saying is that the overwhelming uh, deception that Trump has has laid upon the people who really believed in him and wanted him to make a difference and all that stuff was mixing elements of the truth. And I used to say this about Trump with some issues where I would say, well, it's Trump's not wrong. He's just far from right. <laughs> you know, like Trump's not wrong when he talks about how China is misusing this relationship and trade. He's just not right <laughs> in the manner in which he both discusses it and wants to solve it. You know, um, Trump's not wrong when he says we shouldn't have open borders. He's just wrong to be calling Mexicans rapists and talking about this wall, you know. Uh, but there are, uh, anyhow, I just wanted to get this across there. It is more than this is a man who lies. This is a man who, with the complicity of, of others and with people who so much wanted to believe in this person, have been involved in a mass deception. When you are deceived about something, this goes into your entire body, you know, and this allows you to uh, do things that you probably would never do, as well as people who would definitely do those things as well, you know. So, anyhow, that's just my little take on this. Um, like I said, I don't want to go too far in this, but um, I just want you to know that's where I was coming from on, on this. And it's real interesting because when you see someone like Joe Biden, who I always say, you know, like Joe Biden is a regular politician, so he's going to lie now and then, but he lies the way politicians does. And I made this joke about Hillary. I said the difference between Hillary and Trump is Hillary Clinton lies like a politician. Trump lies like a crackhead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> There's a desperate manner in which he lies. But now I realize it's more than a crackhead. You know, it's, uh, you know, he's involved in a mass deception. And by the way, the mass deception was not started by Trump. That deception has been started by the alt-right. And as Trump kind of rode its coattails to dizzying heights <laughs> in dizzying depths now, you know. But it is something to look out for. So I will just say this to conclude, guys. When you're looking like on Twitter and out in the news and Fox and all these places or wherever where you think, you know, uh, that lying has to occur for uh, something false to be happening. That's not necessarily true. Tucker Carlson engages in a lot of this too. Many times paltering is going on or different types of deception where they're giving you enough truth, but in the process of giving you this truth, what they're really doing is conveying a deception. They're leading you down the path to a deception, and many times they're doing that with the truth. And that's what makes it complicated sometimes. And that's what you need to be on the lookout. All right, there you go. Happy Inauguration Day, everybody. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, what do you think the FBI has done the whole time? You know, this. look at the stuff. Uh, if Watch this film, but I'm talking to Sam Pollard in a second. But it is exactly the method that the FBI has used to discredit people. Paltering is one of those examples, giving you enough of the truth, but involved in a mass deception at the same time. All right, Sam Pollard's coming up next. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe.
All right, welcome back, everybody. Really have a special guest in here today. This gentleman, he's been doing what he's been doing for a while here, and he's he's uh he's just had his fingers in a lot of you know just valuable things. You know, everything from eyes on the prize to all all kinds of things. The Emmy winning, Oscar nominated director Sam Pollard. Welcome to Black on the Air, Sam. It's so great to have you here. And My pleasure, you man. have. Uh, I really appreciate you being here and, you know, being in New York and everything. But you have this new documentary called MLK uh, and the FBI. Is it MLK and the FBI or MLK FBI? What is the actual MLK title? slash FBI. Everybody just says MLK FBI. MLK FBI, which is great. Uh, I watched it last night. And uh, it's an interesting subject because it's not like people don't know it. But when things are kind of presented to you, <laughs> like in a... In a very straightforward manner where you see evidence, it's really kind of fascinating. You know, it gives you a whole new uh, look upon things. Uh, let me ask you, wh- why did you make this? What What was your, uh, was this something you've been thinking about for a while that, that you wanted to do? No, not really. Uh, I had just finished the documentary with the producer of this film, Ben Hadid. And it was about this, it's called Two Titles, Two Trains Running. It was about the search in 64 for two iconic blues musicians, Skip James and Sun House, doing this civil rights movement in Mississippi. And uh, we had just finished the film in 2016. We were looking for a new film to do together. And he had just picked up this book by David Garrow, the historian David Garrow, that was about MLK and the FBI and how they had surveilled King and the links yeah. they went to to try to undermine Dr. King. And then he told me, he said, Sam, I think I found our next film. So then I read a copy of the book. And I happened to know David Garrow because he had been one of our consultants when I was on Eyes on the Prize, too. So I read the book also, and I said, you're right, man. This, this is some really needy material. We should reach out to David. So we did reach out to Garrow. We optioned his book. We ended up in 2017 flying out to Pittsburgh, where he lives. And uh, we spent four hours with a camera crew in tow interviewing David about the book and the genesis of the book and the information about the FBI and how far they went to try to really destroy King's reputation. And then we, you know, we went to the Freedom of Information Act and got some of these transcripts of the, of the recordings of those tapes. And then we decided we were going to put together a sizzle reel and try to raise the money. And, Initially, we went out to a couple of different, you know, production entities, streaming entities, and we didn't get much love. But in 2019, finally, two organizations, a company called Field of Vision and another company called Play Action, they came on board with the funding, which enabled us to do the rest of our interviews, which we did in the fall of 2019. Then we brought on an editor and we brought on an archival producing team. And we started editing in late November, early December, going through hours and hours of archival footage and archival audio. And then we had to do that one shoot, you know, there's these recreations that we have in the film where you see tape recorders and other ephemera. And we shot that stuff two days before New York City was closed down. Wow. And I remember my production designer coming up to me the day before we were supposed to shoot. And he, was, and he said emphatically, if you guys don't get everything shot the next day, you won't see me after that because he was wow. concerned. He was concerned about COVID and his family. Yeah. He didn't want to be in a situation where germs could be exposed. Yeah. So the next day, we had a long 12-hour day 
where we got everything in the can. And that night I got home and the next morning <laughs> the city was shut down. Oh my God. You got in just in a nick of time. Just in the nick of time. It's funny how these things are kind of time capsules also, Sam. And for a lot of people who are younger, they don't really understand the context of history. They get the headlines from it. You know, the king is an enigmatic, isn't this enigmatic figure from time that is almost deified sometimes. And you don't get to see the flesh and blood person, you know. In fact, you're, it's interesting. You open up on this picture. I don't think I've seen a king with this the thinnest mustache possible. <laughs> it looks very bizarre. But you see, what's interesting about that picture, Sam, is he's such a young man. He's so young in that when he started the, you know, the the whole bus uh, boycott, you know, back then, and you realize that you know these were young people doing this, and nobody. It's not like anybody thought he'd be this famous figure at the beginning, no. right? No. They just needed someone. It's amazing that when the Montgomery bus, bus boycott started in Montgomery, Alabama, he was a reluctant, you know, person. They pulled to the front and said, "We need you to lead this." He wasn't. He wasn't up for it. But you right. know, then he, he took it on, and you know, we saw the impact of the Montgomery bus boycott, and I think him and others in the movement saw the impact of the bus boycott and how it was successful, which led to him and others like Ralph Abernathy and and Andy Young basically saying, we need an organization that's going to do exactly what we did in the, the Montgomery Bus Boycott. We're going to go from city to city in the South to break down the walls of segregation, you know, which, as you know, Larry, was entrenched in America. Entrenched, Absolutely. You know, and so there we go. I mean, from 57 on, he was leading the pack. And uh, it's, what's interesting about this film to me is how people, particularly white people, saw this man as a radical threat. Completely. Basically, That's what people forget. Yeah. That's what people don't know. It's not he, like the, the hollowed, hazy view that they have of him now does not match the view that he had. And he was a radical at the time to, That's right. to a lot of people. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because here he is, he's basically saying to white America, Black people don't want to be on the fringes anymore. You know, we don't want to be in our own communities, even though they're self-contained and some are successful. We don't want to have to sit on the back of the bus. We don't want to have to be able to go to the only the colored bathroom or drink from the colored water fountain. Or we have to sit up in the in the crow's nest in the movie theaters. You know, and and it's amazing when you watch some of this footage, man, and and you hear these white people on the street saying, "Woman says I don't like King because he's uppity." <laughs> he's bossy. She said bossy, I think. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And then the lady on the news shows asking King, don't you feel that your peaceful protests are causing the riots in the city? I know. And your, and your ear says, well, didn't I hear that same kind of dialogue about the Black Lives Matter movement this past six months? Yeah. You know? And then she says to him, don't you think your people are moving too fast? And Larry, we've been yeah. through slavery. We've exactly. been through, we had a moment of the reconstruction, which was then wiped away. And then yeah. Plessy versus Ferguson institutes a, a period of absolute Jim Crowism, America's exactly. apartheid. And apartheid, she's, saying, yeah. she's saying to this man, this, this civil rights leader, aren't you people moving too fast? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the protection of the oppressor's feelings 
<laughs> it's like is is an ongoing uh story that always happens. Let's let's protect the oppressor's feelings. We don't wanna yeah, we don't no. wanna hurt their feelings. You're moving too fast. Like you're gonna you're gonna hurt their feelings by getting yeah. too equal too fast. Yeah, hearing that now, I mean, and of course I, I heard that years ago and all that kind of stuff because we kind of lived through that time, you know. But yeah. uh when you hear it back, it's shocking to people that someone and here she's like, I think with uh I think he was either UPI or AP or one of those uh, news. Yeah, services. she was a, a yeah. really professional organization. I mean, it's it's exactly. just amazing. It's amazing, and and what's amazing though to me also, Larry, when listening to Stump on the speech, you know, on the presidential on the road, to, you know, when he was running for president again, listening to him say things like, "If you elect these socialist Democrats, they will come into your communities and they will destroy yeah. it." I mean, it's like talking about communism in the 50s and 60s, you know? My question to myself constantly, Larry, is America ever going to understand the hypocrisy of this nation? Do do we really want to confront it? We just want to keep the mask on. Yeah. There's always the same... uh, It's interesting. I love that you say that because even though this is about that time and about King and FBI, it really is a contemporary comment. <laughs> you know, it's a contemporary story. And the thing that is always common in this is there's always a side story that they want to distract you with, you know, uh, rather than talk about the oppression of black people, they want to make it seem like black people are communists and we shouldn't trust them. <laughs> you know, That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. the same exact thing with BLM, you know, wait, are cops killing black people? Well, BLM are socialists and they're Marxists and they want to do exactly. away with the nuclear family. Wait, when did that conversation start? What yeah. about this other conversation? Yeah, yeah. and you get you got to be mindful of BLM because they're being they're being you know uh, manipulated by Antifa. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. In the way that in the early days of King, which is now the, the difference, of course, too is. King and the blacks at that time had a lot less freedom in this country than, of course, we have today, you know, and that's the thing that I'm not sure people appreciate that you're, you know, you're the window and this kind of takes a look at just in the way that they were treated. There was a lot of doubt in the beginning of that movement. And it's interesting. Here's the other thing I want to ask you about. Well, first of all, the archival, uh, the archival stuff, like, did you personally see a lot of these documents and did you read a lot of the documents that were in the FBI yourself? Ben and I, Ben, my producer and I did, we read a lot of the documents. But the archival material I had when the archival producer came on, I gave him a list of, of subjects that I wanted him to dig into because, you know, I've done a lot of mm-hmm. civil rights films, so I was familiar right, with right, right, the, right. the archive. But I also yeah. said to him, you know, the thing, you know, Brian, that's always important and he knew this because he's an experienced archival producer, is to really dig into that archive and find some some unknown gems that no one yes. has ever seen or heard. So, for example, exactly. that footage of King as a young man wearing that very slick hat and the white yes. cord is getting ready to interview him. I love family. that. I never saw that footage before. Man. I never saw it either, yeah. Yeah, and then the footage of King with, with, with his wife Coretta and his young kids playing around with his parents in that room, I never yeah. saw that footage before. Yeah, the way that you showed the march on Washington, we usually see, you know, the shot at the podium and there's some standard shots. But the shots that you chose were these incidental shots 
that where it's almost like the speech was incidental happening in the background. Yeah, know? we wanted to show and, you the people. I mean, we wanted to show yeah. you the people arriving on the bus. I mean, I think that's what we have with the people on the buses coming to the march. Just phenomenal yeah. stuff. I mean, even the footage that Brian found of, of uh, James O'Ray in the custody of Scotland Yard, I yeah. never saw that before. Man. Yeah, I, like, I, wow. either I forgot or I didn't remember that Scotland Yard actually apprehended. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I remembered it. I don't think I remembered it at all. You know. Yeah. Which, which, you know, the film begs the question. I mean, here's the question that I asked myself as we were working on the film: How come with the FBI's continual surveillance of Dr. King, basically around the clock, how could they not have been aware that there were some people or organizations out there? You know, bent on assassinating Dr. King. It just it, that, it doesn't make sense. Sorry. I want to come back to that, but I want to start at the beginning of that surveillance. Well, let me ask you this, and I I don't know if you guys covered this in the film. I don't remember. There was, of course, there was wiretapping that went on that you covered, but the FBI also did infiltration, of course, of some of these groups. They did it with Malcolm X. They did it with the Black Panthers. Was there any infiltration of the civil rights movements, uh, SNCC or some of these movements by double agents or that type of thing in the Oh, FBI? absolutely. Absolutely. There, I don't know if you remember in the film, we mentioned that there was a gentleman who worked right in the SCLC office who was an informant right. for the FBI. Right. And okay. here's, here's the thing that we found out as we were doing the research. That gentleman is still alive and he lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, uh-huh. ben, ben, my producer, felt we should do one of what I, what I call one of those Mike Wallace 60 Minutes moments. Exactly. Camera crew. But I'm a little, I'm a little gun shy about that kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't really like that kind of kind of gotcha stuff. So uh-huh. I, I, I was resistant. You know, I was saying, you really want to go and knock on this man's door with the cameraman behind me? I know you may like it, but I'm, I don't know I'm, if it's got you as much as, nigga, what were you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. So we, you know, we, we, we kept talking about it. And I kept saying, Ben, I don't know. Do you really want to go knock on this guy's door? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's alive. He's alive. Okay. So in the beginning, uh, Jack Hoover saw, I think the man's name was Levinson, who was uh, the white man who was uh, a friend of King's or was uh, a confidant or whatever you want to call it, who the FBI felt he was a communist or had ties to the Communist Party, Communist Party of America or whatever it was. And Communist Party of the USA. Remember that? That's how he used to call it. Communist Party of the USA. Which, by the way, is another undertold story, that whole communist movement that happened in America, which really happened in the shadow of the Great Depression and with Absolutely. possibility of the entire capitalist system falling apart, you know, you know, the blacklist came out of that and all those kind of stuff. So, you know, there are many people were on the fringes because of their association of that. So Jacob Hoover initially set up this surveillance of King because of feeling that there was a threat of communism, do you think, or feeling that King was a threat in and of himself? No, it was it was originally the idea that Dr. King, who was this burgeoning civil rights activist, was flirting, flirting with the Communist Party. Because as you well know, the Communist Party basically felt that if they could get anybody to support them, it was black communities, black people, you know, who, mm-hmm. who were disenfranchised. And in the mid-50s, after the Montgomery bus boycott, 
Dr. King had met Stanley Levinson, who had been, who had been a communist and mm -hmm. had sort of left the party and still some people thought a real strong communist sympathizer. And mm -hmm. he had a relationship with these two brothers, the Childs brothers, who were very strong communists and who got turned by the FBI and became informants for the FBI. So uh -huh. they thought that because King had this close association, associ mm -hmm. association with, with Stanley Levinson, that he was possibly being, being coerced into being in the Communist Party. So that's, mm -hmm. that was the original motivation for wiretapping right. Dr. King. And they, they, you know, and, and, and he was signed off on by Bobby Kennedy. By Bobby Trump Kennedy. Right. Because Bobby Kennedy and John F. Kennedy, like many Americans, you know, were anti-communist, anti-communist. Yeah. So when they started wiretapping Dr. King and people like Clarence Jones and his associates, what they came to learn that it wasn't so much that they felt they had meat on the bone with his supposed flirtation with the Communist Party, but they learned that this, this upright, upstanding minister whose father was the main minister of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and he was the second in command, and had this wonderful wife and these wonderful children, also uh -huh. was, you know, involved with other relationships with other women. And when they learned that information, that's when Hoover and William Sullivan felt, this is the, this is the smoking gun. This is the uh -huh. thing that we can use to, 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 to undermine Dr. King. So they, they sort of went from the communist thing to this whole thing about his infidelity. Bang. But they, and then they felt that when they had that, they could pass that on to the press, our press, who would take it on and basically print it, exploit it, and destroy King's reputation. But what they didn't, what they didn't count on, from my perspective, Larry, was that back in the 60s, not like today, yeah. the press was not doing news about everything in everybody's life. They were not know? doing the devil's work for that kind of stuff. Yes. They weren't doing the devil's work. And, <laughs> right. and, and what's kind of interesting though, now that they do the devil's work and they, and, they, and they got everything about everybody, it's amazing that all the scandalous, scandalous, scandalized stuff we've heard about Trump, none of it seemed to have stuck. Yeah. And it's a matter of timing because- That's right. It was back then it would have stuck. Yeah, or even 20 years ago, it would have stuck. It would have stuck. Uh, but this is interesting to me that uh, this is a critical moment in the civil rights movement where King really needs uh, his alliance with LBJ needs to be tight, you know. But at the same time, you know, uh, oh, he, he also finds out, here's where Hoover was kind of a, an evil genius, where many times... Like, he wouldn't want that information out there. He wanted the person to know he had the information. And it was the power of having the information that Hoover did more than anything else. And he almost kind of, he kind of started leaking it after his frustration with King not, uh, I guess, doing what he wanted to do. Is that right? Because they had like a famous meeting where Hoover calls him a liar in public, which was this big thing. And people were probably didn't know what to make of that. You know, I would think like, what is Hoover calling him a liar about exactly? Yeah, that was, the only, that was the only time that Hoover and King met. You know, but yes. again, the press didn't go so far as to want to dig into what that meant. You know, and yeah, fortunately for King, they didn't. You know, 
Now, let me ask you this, because here's where it gets a little complicated. So apparently Hoover had a lot of tape on King. They had taped him having sex with women, like maybe there were orgies or something. Like, well, I don't know I, what I mean. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, George Wallace, the uh, comedian, did that famous, he did a great joke where he said, uh, <laughs> when King first had a menage I was like, three at last, three at last, thank God almighty. <laughs> you know? But anyhow, that was George Wallace, the comedian, injected a little humor in there. But it's, there were at least, I mean, in your movie, they have like, uh, at one point, these like 15, uh, different occasions at these motels are like 15 like <laughs> like when did he have time to write the i have a dream speech <laughs> like what's going on uh, was i started to get concerned about was dr king being reckless in those days i mean what do you have a take on that part of it i mean if we're keeping it 100 percent real here i don't know how to answer that one Larry. you know well let me let me put it a different way let me put it a different way Okay, once he knew that the FBI had the awareness of this, did the behavior stop? I doubt it. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. I doubt it. So do you think, but at that time, the entire civil rights movement could have been in jeopardy by a, an expose of King? That's what been, I mean by reckless. I think that because he, we're he just is, keeping is, it real here. Yeah, I know. Real here. I think that his close associates yeah. who knew basically yeah. said this was something you didn't talk about. You know, right? You, you know, and I doubt if they tried to 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 tell him not to do it because that's not how the world was back in the sixties. I mean, I understand. You know, I understand. So, so sure, was he was he was he being reckless? Sure, because this wasn't behavior he should be. You know, confronting, <laughs> right. but uh, right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to judge. I, I, you I know, know you're saying you're not, you know, you know, because I, you know, I, you know, I, I got, I got my own skeleton. So, so, so it's a. I understand. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. But, but think of it this way. Let, let, let me answer it this way. Let me answer sure. this way. Obviously, his personal life was much more complicated and difficult than we ever imagined it would be. And obviously, there could, been, there could have been major repercussions. And like all of Completely. us... Completely. Like all of us, he's, he's an intelligent enough man to know that. But sometimes... You would think. Yeah, but sometimes as human beings, your intelligence, your emotions outstrip your intelligence. That's all. I mean, he's just a human being. So, sure, did he, did he probably... <laughs> For this toe in water that he shouldn't have. Yeah. Toe in water. I wouldn't use that body part, but uh look, my, and as you face. say, yes, as you say, the world was like that, as we know, John F. Kennedy, you know, of sure. course, you know, very famous for that, you know, and who knows, could have compromised the nation's security in some ways by having these, you know, affairs. And sure, he like could that. Have. sure. I mean, you know, you are making a you're making a good point, but it's kind of tricky to me. But you know? well, did you ever hear from anybody that had those feelings at all or thought that, you know what, I wish we could have done something. I mean, the brother, no. I don't know. No, you no, know. I never, no. And I doubt, quite honestly, I'll be honest, with you, I doubt anybody yeah. said that to him. That's the, right. it, was the, it was the 1960s. We lived in yeah. a different kind of world. Men, yeah. men, and I'm going to say this very frankly, men did that a lot. 
you know yes. it was it wasn't like an aberration man it was like they, they kind of have permission from the world to do it that's what the world was like and i'm not saying this yes. right but that's what the world was like so i doubt if anybody said martin you shouldn't be doing that <laughs> i doubt anybody said that to okay me. so but howsomever you know not just wanting to leak this to the press that didn't take the bait but Hoover sent a tape to the King. The Scott King, yeah, he did. Correct, yeah. Which uh, I think it was dramatized in the movie Selma, I believe. It was also uh, in the, it was also an HBO movie Boycott. That was okay. Yeah, dramatized Jeffrey, there also. Jeffrey Wright played Doctor King. Okay, what is the reality around that? Uh, you have it in your movie. How? What was her actual reaction uh, to that? Did she believe it at first? Was she like? Did it cause a rift between them initially? Did you talk to people about that? Do you know? Was Because we know King was paranoid about what was going on with Hoover, but did that affect their marriage at that at that time? Well, I don't know. I mean, we didn't ask anybody, but you and I know she could have, she, she could either have been in denial that it was him on those tapes, or she could have mm-hmm. believed it, or she knew who he was, and it could have caused some kind of, you know, complications in their life. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask, quite honestly, you know what I would say to you? You'd have to ask one of those King children if she ever talked about it. I doubt if she ever talked about it beyond talking to her immediate family. Because it's also a fascinating moment. And she put out some kind of statement saying, unless she saw something, she wouldn't believe it, which, you know, you know, because we know there's also a disinformation campaign that was happening, of course, at the same time. Sure. Um, um, but it is, it, it's a fascinating period where so many different things could have happened during like the, like a, I feel like a three year period between 64 and 67. A lot could have happened. You're absolutely right. But the, the thing is this way here's a man who's at the head of the civil rights movement, as A. Philip Randolph says, being the film, the moral leader, the moral leader of our right. movement. Who just same, won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Wins a Nobel Peace Prize. He's being called by Jay Hood, the most notorious liar in the world. Right. You know, then by 67, he decides that it's not just about the movement of civil rights, it was about coming out, having the largest stance, going up yeah. against Vietnam, knowing full well the impact that would have on his relationship with LBJ and the Johnson administration, yeah. you know, and dealing with also, as you, as you, as you, digging into his very complicated personal life. These are a lot of heavy things to deal with, man. I mean, yeah, you know, he really could have, you know, as you said, he could have negotiated to deal with these things, certain things in a different way. Obviously, who knows? I mean, who knows? I yeah. mean, the only people who know, quite honestly, Larry, are Clarence Jones, Andy Young, and what his yeah. kid might know. Anybody well, who's an associate. Clarence Jones pretty much said, yo, man, this stuff is true. <laughs> yeah, he said it's true. But, yeah, you know, yeah. If you go back to Ralph Abernathy's book, Ralph Abernathy yeah. talked about his book, which caused a lot of con- dissension. I remember. Movement, you know, when yeah, he put I remember that, that book out. You know, Aaron, yeah. Aaron King's Dirty the Laundry. Dirty Laundry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. What do you think would have happened if, let's say, if alternate, let's do a little alternate history here, and then I want to go back to Vietnam after this. Um, 1965, like before the civil rights uh, bill is passed, what if Hoover had succeeded and King was, you know, kind of uh, damaged in the press or that type of thing? Do you think it would have hurt the civil rights and voting yeah, rights legislation would, at sure. that time? It would, it, yeah. would, it, would, it would definitely hurt it, sure. LBJ would have had a reason not to do it, right? He would have had to rethink it, you know, yeah. because, because all of a sudden he would have been confronted with the facts that his main guy, the guy yeah. who was his closest the voice he could listen to about the movement yeah. was, was, had been, you know, damaged beyond repair. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. When you see those images of, of Johnson signing both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights yeah. Act, who's, who's front and center there in the Black community? It's Dr. King. And it's fascinating to see the one where Hoover is on the side, you know, when they're signing one of them as well, you know, wielding his power silently yeah. as, as he did. Yeah, he's a powerful man. Absolutely. So we get past the Voting Rights Act. And the other part of history that I thought you told well, that is undertowed, I feel, uh, Sam, is the fact that Dr. King came out without anybody asking, by the way, and took a position in the Vietnam War, which immediately caused not only a division between him and the left press, but him and the movement, some black people in general, what you might call moderates, it opened up a whole can of worms. What what happened in that moment? Why why do you think he he did that at that moment? Well, the way we articulated in the film, he had he had seen these pictures in this Ramparts magazine article of these mm-hmm. Vietnamese children who who were living through the horrors of war, a war basically imposed by America, you know, a war in a country that had gone through this. This craziness, even before America came in with the French, you know, when the French got pushed out, then the Americans came in. It's sort of similar to what happened with the Afghanistan, man. You know, the mm-hmm. Russians went in there, failed miserably, and America comes in saying they're going to save the day, and look look where we are with, with being in Afghanistan. So after he saw right. this article in Ramparts and saw these pictures, I think deep in his heart, he knew that he couldn't just sort of stand by and look yeah. at the fact that imperialistic America, this is Sam's phrase, imperialistic mm-hmm. America was again trying to say, we're going to these countries because we want to we want to stop the flow of communism from taking over the world. Like all of a sudden, mm-hmm. communists were going to go from South Vietnam, North Vietnam, take over all of Asia, go to, mm-hmm. to the South Africa, then to America. I mean, it's nuts when you think about it. So that's why he felt he had to had to voice his opinions. And so mm-hmm. when he did his speech at Riverside Church, that was that was major for Dr. King. And you know, Dr. King was an intelligent enough man to know the ramifications of that. The ramifications, mm-hmm. again, like I said, from the Johnson administration, but the also the backlash you would get from the black community and those in the Absolutely. who basically Absolutely. said, stay focused on civil rights. Why are you going off and dealing with being anti-Vietnam right. against the war in yes. Vietnam? You're just hurting us. You're going to hurt us in our relationship with Ron Johnson. You're going to hurt us with the community. Those yeah. in the community who are more conservative and moderate who believe we should be in the war. You're going to hurt us, you know. But he felt he had mm-hmm. to take that moral stance, you know. And, and once again, the context needs to be there. The feeling, 
the your average person was not an anti-war person necessarily. You know, they're still living in the rosy glow of World War II, all that kind of stuff. It's in the mid '60s. You know, anti-war protesters were really on the—they seem to be on the fringe left at that moment. You know, and certainly in 1966-67, in that vocal way. You know, like people were gave the president. It was President Johnson at the time, really the benefit of the doubt, and probably until the Tet Offensive in '68, right? Well, here's 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 a story. In 1964, I was 14 years old. Yeah, and I remember I was in junior high school, and our history teacher had given us an assignment. You know, where we were supposed to present our views about Vietnam, mm. and I I was I was completely pro Vietnam man. You know, mm-hmm. my attitude as a 14-year-old was what you're just saying. Yeah. We're in there because we, we need to stop communism from spreading right. around the world. The domino I, theory they were talking yeah, about. I gave, yeah. a, I, gave a, a I gave a very yeah. strong presentation about why we need to be in Vietnam. 14 right. years old, black young man. Yes. <laughs> Five years, four years later, I was anti-Vietnam. Yeah. Another thing that Blacks risked at that time was, you know, here Blacks wanted to be treated as, you know, equal members in the society. And, you know, we get accused of this and that and being communist. The last thing we want to be accused of is to be accused of being non-patriotic, right? You know, because it certainly is not true. If there ever was a patriotic group of, of Americans, it was Black Americans. We just weren't allowed to participate and patriotism in the same way. And so I feel like what divided the division in that moment was the almost the taking away of that card. Uh, it was able to, it would be easier to label the Black movement as a non-patriotic movement if King comes out, um, you know, against the war no, at true. that moment. That's absolutely know. correct. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Listen, listen, you, you, you know, I grew up believing very strongly that if 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 I did the right thing, if I didn't make yeah. any waves, wow. I would I would I would be accepted in the American melting pot, man. Yes. You know, yes. I would I would I would go to when I first started working in the film business, I would carry a book of Ernest Hemingway under my arm. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. or F, F. Right. Scott Fitzgerald. So they could say, oh sure. he's an intelligent black man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know? Right. You know? That's I mean, great. it's exactly what you're saying, man. You know, you yeah. want you want you want America to accept you. That's you know? right. So, so when Dr. King comes out against Vietnam, he's saying, "Oh, Dr. King, what are you doing?" Yeah, it's like, still? "What are you doing, Dr. King? We were on the <laughs> five yard line." <laughs> Listen, uh, man. You know, you know, it's 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 people. I don't think even today in the 21st century, you know, like, yeah. White people understand what it means to be a black person in America and have to negotiate, you know, the the, the highways and byways of That's America. Right. You know, yeah. unless you're going to stay completely in your community and never come out, you right. know, you, you like got Amish. You gotta, yeah. yeah, you got to figure out the negotiation. I mean, think back, right. you know, when when you know the when OJ the OJ documentary came out, sure, and yeah. and, the, and the level of complexity about OJ, you know. I was saying to somebody, nobody thought of, thought of OJ as a black person until so he got arrested for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You know, you know then he became, oh, OJ's black. 
<laughs> well, he was black when he was playing football. He lost his blackness after playing football. And then he got it back when he was on trial. <laughs> right? Yeah, but as a black person playing football, that was sort of like, that's fine. You know, you can be right. a great black athlete. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's no threat there. Yeah. There's no yeah. threat. Unless you unless you do a Colin Kaepernick thing. I mean, you go on one knee and you say, what? Why are people saying, what? How dare he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The negotiation in the relationship has always been there. It's kind of a, been a fascinating thing. What's also interesting, Sam, during that period, King actually, another thing that people kind of forget is he wasn't as popular as he had been before during like a whole year before, I think it was assassinated, before he started that Poor People's Campaign. And people forget that too. And you touch on that also in your documentary. Yeah, he wasn't he a kind, popular man. He wasn't popular. Wow. Mm. I mean, it's almost like he was done, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you see, you, he, see it, you see a weariness in, in sort yeah, of the there's, Yeah, yeah. Do, do you think he felt like any guilt during that time? Or did he feel like, do you have, did anyone ever talk about uh, what King was going through personally? Did he feel like he had let the movement down in any way? Or or how was he feeling about it? You know, Andy Young of Clanshams never, never broached that. But, yeah. I, but I would say to you, listen. Be interesting. I would say to you that there could be no way that Dr. King didn't have some sort of complicated feelings about his role Absolutely. In, by 67. Absolutely. I mean, he's, right. he's too intelligent a man to just see things yeah. one way, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, this has been from like 55, 56 up till 67, 68. That's a long time. That's 13, 12 years, man. Yeah. You know, trying to push the boulder up the hill. Right. You know, that, that, can, that can be weary. That can be really weary. I mean, you know, most of our lives are complicated, but not to the extent yeah. that his was. Yeah. If, if uh, and this is a hypothetical, and forgive me for even asking this, but if King had not been assassinated, do you think he'd be held in the same type of place, you know, legacy-wise? I don't know. It's hard to know, uh, right? It's hard to know. I, I don't know. I mean, you know how things, I mean, the perspective on people who have been celebrated is reevaluated time and time again. I mean, yeah. 1960, man, 1963, I was in my classroom in, in middle school and my teacher comes in and says, the, class, the school will be suspended today because John F. Kennedy was just shot in Dallas, mm -hmm. Texas. Now, yeah. again, Larry, I'm 13 years old and yeah. I saw, I didn't think I thought I saw John Kennedy as, you know, this handsome young Catholic American, yeah. you know, had become president of the United States with this beautiful wife, Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. We, called it, we called it Camelot, you know. Yeah. But who knew when I was 13 years old how complex John F. Kennedy's life was? Yeah. How maybe he wasn't the great president I thought he was back in 1963. I mean, that's what happens. That's what's, that's not what happens. That's what's fascinating about history. Yeah. As, as you learn about history and history is revisited time and time again from different angles by different writers and different filmmakers, you see things and you learn things about these people that I find extremely fascinating. That's why I love yeah. documentaries so much, you know, yeah. because, because, you know, 
it was in 68 when King was assassinated. I was 18. All I thought of Dr. King was this great man. And then the yeah. I Have a Dream speech. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. yep. He was special. You know, and I was saying in my household where I grew up, in, in, in probably a lot of black, black households, we had three pictures on the wall. That's right. Martin, I know exactly where you're going. Martin Luther King. <laughs> yep. John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy and Jesus. And Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Those are the three. <laughs> that's it, man. And they probably a black Jesus. <laughs> that's right. They were the three. They were the that's three. The, man. three. the Holy that's Trinity. So true. I know. Yeah, the Holy Trinity. So you didn't question. You didn't question yeah. who they were and what they were all about. Until right. I got older. So I started reading more, yeah. thinking more. And yeah. you raising the kind of questions you've been raising to me today. <laughs> well, um, like I said, keep it under. I mean, was Jesus and Mary Magdalene hanging? I can't wait. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we should ask those questions, you know. <laughs> you know so it's, who knows? You know, who knows how? Yeah. I mean, if King had survived, who knows how he would have been looked upon, you know? Yeah. You know? It's kind of interesting. It is but interesting. Part of why he is revered is because he did give his life for for the cause, exactly you know, right. it is That's it exactly is part right. of why why we do place him higher, you know. Yeah, but but, but, but Larry, look at this. I was I'm, I'm helping this filmmaker do a film about the relationship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, mm -hmm. and 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 looking at that history, you remember when mm -hmm. when Ali first came along and he was Cassius Clay and he was a loud mm -hmm. mouth. There were those in the black community says, "Oh, he's a big mouth. He's too this." Absolutely, you know, he's, athletes he's don't talk like that. And why you got him? Why you got to stir the pot? Yeah, why you got to stir the pot all the time? And then you fast forward to 25 years later, 30 years later, yeah. Muhammad Ali, I mean, everybody, white, black, everybody yeah. reveres him. I mean, it's fascinating yeah. how you see people can be involved in history, how they change, the perspective yeah. on changes. It's fascinating. People understand. Ali was hated by a lot of people. Hated. Sure. Not just disliked, but hated, you know. You know, these tapes, uh, the King tapes, we'll call them, uh, that are the the surveillance that the FBI did on these affairs that King had are, I guess, will be released in 2027. They'll be uh, that's, that's declassified. The idea. Yeah, they'll uh, be Do you think the release of these tapes will have any change to his legacy? Do you think people will view King differently with this type of thing? out? Well, what, what is your take on that? Here's my take. That unless the FBI did some heavy editing on the tapes, mm -hmm. what I would think you might hear, besides the stuff that people are going to have their mouths watering about, mm -hmm. hopefully they'll be on these tapes. The conversations that Dr. King had with Andy Young or Ralph Abernathy mm -hmm. or Dorothy Cotton or Wyatt Walker, whoever was with him on these different city journeys, and mm -hmm. hopefully you'll hear conversations about their strategies, about how to deal with going into Birmingham, Alabama. What's yeah. going to happen the next day That'd when be fascinating. in Georgia? What's going to happen yeah. when you're in Selma? How are we going to deal with these young Turks from SNCC led by Stokely Carmichael? You know that. Right. Yes, yes. yes. You know, yeah, yeah, that would be we're awesome. Trying to do, we're trying to do it in a peaceful, nonviolent way. And here comes Stokely Carmichael and his right. band, you know, marauders yeah. trying to take us out. Black take power. us out. Yeah. That's right. Saying, yeah. we want black power. We want black right. power. You know, yeah. it's, I'm, that's what I would hope I could hear on those tapes, but who knows? The, the FBI might have edited these, edited these tapes in such a way that you're only going to hear the salacious material. And yeah, me yeah. being an editor, me being an editor, I know how you can manipulate stuff. Right. <laughs> you know? The other part I want to ask is, 
Do you think we'll ever get some kind of accountability for some of the horrible, evil shit the FBI has done? No. I mean, when do we get accountability for that organization? No. I mean, they killed Fred Hampton. Yeah. I mean, they killed yeah. him. Yeah. You know, they let Malcolm X be assassinated. They didn't Absolutely. care. They had Absolutely. all that information. Do you think they knew that King would be assassinated? Uh, absolutely. I absolutely do think so. I mean, how could, mm-hmm. how could they be monitoring him so closely for so long, mm-hmm. not be aware of groups or individuals who were out Chatter. there to, yeah, to assassinate mm-hmm. King? I mean, mm-hmm. this was the FBI. I mean, right. it's like last week. It was like, Larry, last week, oh, you're going to tell me the FBI wasn't aware of what was happening on social media? Oh, of course they, they were. They Absolutely knew, they were. You know, but yeah. why... But why didn't they say, or why didn't they really push to have, you know, a level of force in front of the mm-hmm. Capitol building not to have that place overrun by those extremists? Why? Right. Because, this is my take on it, because when you look like me, you're okay. If you don't look like me, you're a threat. <laughs> That's crazy. And and when you say look like me, you don't mean Sam Pollard. You mean the FBI. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the FBI. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, it's like it's like when you it's like you look at the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer. You saw that mm-hmm. show of force out there in front of the Capitol building. Oh, there, I didn't see one tank in front of the Capitol. And you have to have tanks for people who are just marching down a regular street. That's right. It was so of force. All of a sudden now, all these extremists who have been, you know, revved up on social media, revved up by Donald J. Trump. You know, mm-hmm. They head down to the Capitol building and just the Capitol Police? Come on, you know. <laughs> Let me ask you this side question. I really appreciate you being here, Sam. People should really watch this documentary. It's just, especially if you're, you don't even have to be a history nerd like me or, or like this, you know, it's just another portrait of this figure that, you know, we all rightly revere. I think it's good that he's humanized personally, you know, Me that too. he is a three a three-dimensional figure and not some mythic figure. He was a man, you know. He had like any person, you know, they have, you know, our good points and our our frail points. points or whatever. But That's he was right. a three-dimensional individual and the contribution he made to me does deserve that legacy and that status and all that stuff, you know. Um Andrew Young said something that I find a bit controversial. This is kind of a side comment. Um, but, and I don't know why it went this way. And I don't know what your feelings are on it, where he feels that James O'Reilly didn't, uh, shoot Dr. King. And some people have said that. And I know there's been like this reconciliation and everything. And I don't understand where that's coming from. Like, what's wrong? Why, why can't James O'Reilly have killed Dr. King? Like, why does it need to be this grander conspiracy? Like, you know, I don't understand the exoneration of James L. Ray in people's minds. Well, ask yourself this question. Did you believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman who shot JFK? I, I don't mean, know why he couldn't be. Uh, I'll put it to you this way, Sam, but before you go on. I'm a writer, right? And one of the rules of uh, writing like a thriller is your, your uh, villain and your protagonist have to have equal powers. You know, mm-hmm. otherwise the audience isn't that interested. You That's know, right. uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the nobody. And John F. Kennedy is this highly revered man, as you said, you know, he is the king of Camelot. You know, 
it is very hard to accept that some somebody as nothing as Lee Harvey Oswald can bring down that man. I mean, it's very hard to accept that, you know, but it absolutely could be true. Could somebody else have been involved? They might have been. Was there a grand conspiracy? Mm, I don't know. I mean, hard to kind of prove those things, but I also have no, I don't have a problem believing that it could have just been Lee Harvey also. I don't have a problem believing that, you know, but of course something, something more could have been involved, but I don't have a problem believing that a person can do that by themselves. Can it also be a conspiracy? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean a person can't just do that by themselves as well. So, so let me ask you this question. You think James L. Ray had the know-how and the ability to have passports to be able to get out of the country? You know, does he have, he have the ability to be this one? Does a white man in America have the means of somebody who's going to shoot like the leading, the leading Negro figure in America is not going to have friends that might help him get out of the country? You just said it, though. Have friends. <laughs> have friends. Right. So, Absolutely. So ask yourself this other question. So it doesn't this, it, I, that does not exonerate James Earl Ray. It still doesn't exonerate him. No, no, I'm not saying it does. So I'm saying that right. I think it's possible that he might have shot Dr. King. He probably did shoot Dr. King, but he had he had people who helped him. Separate no issue. Way. But well, how does it? How does that exonerate him? Is what I'm saying. Well, I don't know if it exonerates him. I, I think no, but that's what they're doing. Like when they say, "I don't think you shot him." Like, well, then who did? It's like, why? Why are we having this? I don't know why people want to do that, like absolve him of responsibility because others may have been involved. That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. if others were involved, sorry, motherfucker, you still shot him. You still shot him. Yes. Okay. Other people helped you out, but you are not being uh, being absolved for the act of shooting him, even if you were helped by other people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But I, from the perspective of Andy Young, what he's saying is that he sees James O'Ray being used as a patsy for other people who were involved in the assassination. I so understand. You know, but, but the, you know, they go I, further I and exonerate James O'Ray as not having done it. That's where they've gone further. And in fact, some members of the King family, I think, have, have for either, I don't forgive. know if forgive is the right word because yeah, if you forgive but, somebody, it means that they actually did something. How can you yeah. forgive somebody for something they didn't do, which doesn't make yeah, sense. That's right. That my, doesn't make sense. Yeah, my head just wanted, wants to explode for yeah. this. It's like, James O'Reilly, are you contrite for this? Is that what it was? You know, you want a forgiveness from the King family? Well, maybe, Larry, this should be my next film. Yes, this, yes, this, please. This, thank you. This should be my next <laughs> film, digging into did James O'Reilly really shoot Dr. King, you know? And really do a whole exactly. exploration to that. Maybe I should talk to Ben, my producer, about that. We've been looking for our next film. It might take some looking into. You could you could do RFK the same thing. It happened, you know, yeah. a few months later. People don't want to believe Sirhan Sirhan did it. <sighs> I don't know why people can't accept that. Some people are crazy. Well, because because <laughs> because you know, many of us want to believe that there's always larger forces at play. That's exactly. All. Larger forces. I understand. Yeah. I know. I know, but the chaos <laughs> theory suggests otherwise, you know. But anyhow, uh, the larger forces that play I want here is for a lot of people to see this movie. That, those are the larger forces that play. Good. MLK slash FBI, guys, is a fascinating look at this period in time. And, you know, takes uh, presents, uh King to us in a, in a way that isn't always flattering, but is humanizing. And Sam Pollard, thank you so much. For this movie. Um, thank you, Larry, for having me on for this really very exciting conversation. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. And happy MLK weekend. And let's not forget, like I said, all the great things 
that his dedication and the people in that movement and their dedication did exactly you know very important so we can even have this conversation about it yeah thank you very much sam pollard everybody <laughs>